No one was around when the ransomware attack started late one Friday night in September 2019. The classrooms were quiet, the lights were off. Whether the attackers timed it that way was unknown. But by the next morning, the North Shore School District discovered that their Windows computers weren't quite right. So you get a call, you know, I got a call, I don't know, around 7 or 7.30 from my boss saying, hey, the DBA's got some issues, can you go look into it? So I start poking around and you're thinking, okay, there's a problem with the machine. You poke around and it takes a while for it to actually hit you saying, oh, this is a ransomware attack. That was Ski Kaczorowski. For nearly 18 years, he's been a systems administrator with the North Shore School District in Bothell, Washington. It's a half-hour drive northeast of Seattle, a region known for its stunning vistas and activities like hiking and kayaking. It's also, generally, in the land of Microsoft. The school district has 23,000 students and 4,000 staff that's spread over 38 sites. It's a nice little place to work. North Shore School District officials didn't know on that night that access to its IT systems had already been auctioned off twice earlier that year by cyber criminals. Those transactions were the prelude to an incident that would cripple the school district. It involved the Ryuk ransomware. It turned out to be an eye-opening experience for a school district where IT security was not a priority and it only had two system admins. The attack against North Shore is a representative example of the surge in ransomware against schools, hospitals, businesses, and critical infrastructure. Computer security experts, policymakers, and politicians are brainstorming how to stop what is in many ways a perfect crime executed from afar with little chance of being caught. For those in the IT security space, ransomware feels like a never-ending negative story. Who's been infected, who paid a ransom, and who lost data? But behind the scenes are great stories of resilience. Incident responders who spend long hours repelling attacks, system administrators rebuilding systems, and those in between trying to keep things ticking over while critical systems are down. Those are stories of resilience and perseverance. This is The Ransomware Files. I'm Jeremy Kirk. In this podcast mini-series, I'm going to talk with those who have navigated their way through a ransomware incident and learn how they fought back and what tips they can pass on to others. No ransomware infection is ever welcomed, but there's invaluable knowledge gained. There should be no shame in getting infected, but it's important to share the lessons. Ski has a quote on his LinkedIn page from Scottish-American naturalist John Muir. It goes, quote, When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe, end quote. Ski says that this applies to IT as well. A small change made on a system at one point in time can come back and bite you in the future. You know, you think, oh, I can just modify this. And then a week or two later, you get nailed to the wall because it was connected or interacted with something that you didn't even think about. The connectedness of IT systems is what has given criminals fertile opportunity. Cyber criminals in Russia, the Ukraine, or even the UK can take advantage of a whole ecosystem that caters to their needs. There's cyber criminals that specialize in gaining access to systems. There are brokers who sell that access on to others. Ransomware groups may buy those access credentials, hoping to eventually land a payout from a stricken business. That business may want to just unlock their files encrypted by ransomware or just not see their sensitive data dumped on 
the web. But of course, this is this school district's first brush with this criminal ecosystem. By 8.30 on Saturday morning, the district realized it was in real trouble. And then you think it's only a problem on a couple of machines. You don't realize that these things just spread like wildfire. If you have it on one machine, you need to power off absolutely everything ASAP. And that's one of the things that we've now put into our policy. If we see anything that even smells like a ransomware attack on the servers that has not been caught, we just power off the entire data center. We'll worry about putting it back together afterwards. The North Shore School District has a really diverse mix of computers, and it's not entirely a Windows shop. Its data center is composed of around 300 Windows, Linux, and black box servers running on VMware. About 180 of those are Windows servers. There are also machines with FreeBSD and on the user side, a whole mix of things like Chromebooks and Macs and iPads. For Office software, the district used a mix of G Suite and Office 365. That mixed environment proved to be an advantage and it meant less damage from the ransomware attack, which typically only go after Windows machines. But early on that Saturday morning, there was little comfort in anything. The school district had just two full-time administrators, one of whom specialized in Windows and then Ski, a Unix expert who did everything else. I think you mentioned the word despair one time. In yeah. The- Well, it really is because you're all alone and there's only two of you, right? Well, first you wonder, will will you get fired? Thankfully, the school district doesn't do things like that because, yeah, you've just dropped the the whole thing shut down, right? And then second, you wonder, okay, how the heck am I going to rebuild this thing? How how am I going to do this? And like I say, we were fortunate. Many of our critical services like DNS and DHCP didn't run on Windows. If that was all down, none of the kids would have been able to do anything. Yeah, right, right. So so again, we were extremely fortunate that we're a heterogeneous environment. And um, but you do feel a lot of despair at times. How, How will I ever do this? And especially when it seems like you're the first one that's ever gone through it. The first thoughts turned to backups. The district had a mix of network area storage and iSCSI storage. Once every month or two, the district would take snapshots of all of its data and upload it to AWS and then disconnect it from its backups. It's the air-gapped offense, except of course, it's not air-gapped all the time. And that, unfortunately, included the weekend the ransomware struck. This one weekend was when it was connected doing those snapshots up to Amazon. So the attacker said, oh, great, here's another file system. And with the backups, the attackers don't have to encrypt them because that takes a lot of time, right? Backups are typically very large. All they have to do is destroy them. So if you have an air-gap backup, it's not air-gap unless it's air-gap 100% of the time because... You might get burned like we did. And you realize, oh, by midday Saturday, we realized our backups were completely toasted. There was nothing we could do. As they began to try to assess the damage, it became apparent that the attack was deceptive in some respects. Servers will continue to run mostly in memory while the drive itself is encrypted by the ransomware. It was unclear, though, to Ski and his colleague exactly what was affected at first. Some servers continued to run despite Ryuk chewing its way through files in the background. But it was clear that an all-out effort had to be made to save what's the backbone of many networks, Active Directory. 
Active Directory is Microsoft software that manages access to resources on the network. It manages groups of users and their access permissions. Active Directory is often the target for intruders because it holds so much valuable data. It's also a good place for ransomware actors to strike because shutting it down means the whole organization will be shut down. It really is the crown jewel. The district had a stroke of luck though. It was running Active Directory on Server Core, which is a stripped down version of Windows Server without the graphical user interface. For some reason, the React ransomware didn't work quite as well as it did on the full-fledged Windows Server. That bought time to recover security identifiers, they're often referred to as SIDs, which identify users, computers, and groups in Active Directory. Those SIDs could be recovered with Lightweight Directory Access Protocol or LDAP tools. The district's Active Directory had a huge amount of data that had accrued on it over time and had data on some 40,000 teachers, staff, and students. It took them a longer time to get on there and start encrypting things. Because of that, and because it was still running in memory, even though they had trashed all of the Windows tools for accessing Active Directory, so nothing in PowerShell would work, I'm a Unix guy and my LDAP tools could still connect to it. And the first thing I did mid-afternoon Saturday once we realized this was our only hope of surviving was to dump the schema, just the whole nine yards. So now I've got this file that's a whole bunch of SIDs related to other SIDs and names and groups associated with those SIDs. We were able to use that to rebuild our Active Directory system. It still took us almost two weeks to get it completely rebuilt, but without that file, it would have been an absolute nightmare. Besides rescuing as much as possible of Active Directory, the district was due to run payroll in a few days, and obviously that was very important. If you don't do payroll, you're in big legal hot water. They managed to complete payroll on time, but there were other urgent systems. One was the student information system, which contains records that are used by teachers, students, and staff every day. The next priority became the phone systems. Schools get hundreds of voicemails every day. Later, it became evident there actually were some good backup surprises. It was discovered that the NAS data was recoverable due to the snapshot feature, and most of the database backups were stored on the NAS. Also, the contractor that ran the district's phone system ended up having backups. The school district lost voicemail, but was able to recover everything else. Ski calls these kind of serendipitous reservoirs of data informal backups, or places where data ends up being stored that no one either really realizes or even remembers. There were also critical systems affected that no one had thought about for years. The HVAC system, the intercom system that ran the school bells, and then there was the food services point of sale system. Long forgotten, it ran for years on its own, keeping track of how much lunch money students had in their accounts. Food services was one that nobody literally knew about. It had been put in, you know, 10, 12 years earlier. It just ran. We didn't know technology didn't have to do anything with it. We found out from the food services people that this system handled 10,000 meals a day. It did $30,000 a day in business. And it was even more important because it was used as a basis for governmental, for reports we had to make to the federal government to get free and reduced lunch refunds from the government back to our district. This rapidly turned into our third most critical system due to the amount of money involved. 
and it was completely gone. The restoration of all these systems became an all-hands-on-deck effort, and the district received needed help from the outside. A local hosting provider lent five system administrators. The district was in touch with Microsoft, but Byzantine companies like Microsoft are tricky to navigate, especially in a crisis. So we have found this out with lots of different vendors, especially the larger ones. You call up, you have to work your way through all the levels of support. It's really hard to get to the people that actually know, have the knowledge to resolve a problem of this magnitude. Um, so again, this is where it comes down to relationships. This is why I say they're so critical. And when we kept going through their normal channels and getting no help, because they're just not designed to handle something like this. I don't, I don't blame Microsoft for it, but they don't have a channel designed to set up and say, I've got a company completely down. We have to do all these things that are non-standard and have never ever been done or only done once in a while. But the district had a secret advantage because it resides in the land of Microsoft. One of its students had a parent who worked at the company. That parent lent a hand cutting through red tape when regular channels were unsuccessful. We actually had a parent who was a senior somebody at Microsoft. Other vendors also offered help. For example, the district's student records vendor migrated the district to its software-as-a-service version in six days when a normal migration would have taken six months. Another vendor provided a project manager that was crucially important for keeping track of which tasks needed to be done in the right order. The project manager would occasionally come to me and say, well, okay, you're working on X, but here's something else that we think might be more important. Can you give us our feedback on it? Is it more important or is it not more important? And then I could give them some feedback and sometimes I'd say, yep, you're right. I need to stop what I'm doing and switch to that, for example. It also required a high degree of organization. The district used Google spreadsheets to keep track of which machines had been rebuilt, what machines had forensic scripts run on them, and how different services interacted with one another. Quiet spaces were a requirement as well. The district's instructional technology specialists, and these are the people that help teachers and students use technology, forfeited their office spaces to those who needed uninterrupted stretches of time. Remember the quote on Ski's LinkedIn page from John Muir describing the depth to which the world at large is interconnected? And do you remember the battle that Ski and his colleague waged to save Active Directory? There's more to that story. The district's Azure Active Directory system was managed through Active Directory, and the Azure Active Directory system brokered authentication to email. But you remember those security identifiers, they're also called SIDs. So when Azure Active Directory and Active Directory were restored, there were different SIDs for the same people. This was a big problem. So the unique identifier for Chris Kucherowski in Azure is now different than the unique identifier for Chris Kucherowski interactive directory system. What happens if all of a sudden we hook them together? Nobody knew. Spent a lot of time with Microsoft doing test runs, and then you do a test run across 40,000 or so accounts, and Microsoft will, will, will throttle you because you're making too many changes. Even though we were talking to their senior devs, they still got the, the DevOps folks over there would still throttle us. So then you have to wait for the test run to run, and then you find out, nope, it, it would have screwed everything up, so that's no good. And it was just a whole lot of work to get that done. An, an amazing amount of work. The person in charge of that transition was granted his own private workspace. 
he needed to be on the phone for almost eight days straight with Microsoft trying to get this thing all put back together. No one was allowed to bother him. And so that's why he basically got locked in a room and nobody went ahead and could bother him unless you had the IT director's permission. You literally had to ask his permission because this, again, was the most critical system. We didn't want him doing anything else. There definitely was an emotional toll in all this recovery. But despite the urgency to get things restored, the district implemented some rules to try to prevent burnout. The staff worked until midnight but were then sent home to get some rest. The manager of the instructional technology specialist also brought in home-cooked meals. So instead of getting Subway, we got really nice food. You know, and those little things mean a lot when you're putting in, you know, 12, 18-hour days all the time. To recognize the achievement of bringing the system back up, they rang a cowbell. That idea, again, came from the instructional technology specialist with the district. Humans are social animals, period. And you want to celebrate things. You have to, it, it can't all be doom and gloom. So every time something goes right, um, we would ring a cowbell saying, hey, something went right. You know, we got another system up or something good happened. So the district did have cyber insurance. And by the Monday after the attack had started, the insurer was involved. But that also created tension. The insurer appointed its own incident response firm. The insurer required that forensic scripts be run on 180 servers, which is a very time-consuming task. That also meant that those servers were out of action until they'd been scanned. The only way you can do forensics is you you got to take that drive, you have to attach it to a test server or a temporary server that's on a secure, isolated network. You run the forensics, and then you have to unattach it from the drive, stick it on a different network, copy the forensic data off, and then put it in a place where the people can see it. You're talking two, three hours or more per server, sometimes more, wow. and 180 servers, it adds up really quick. And then they wanted us to do that on a whole bunch of the um, workstations too. Um, we managed to negotiate with them saying, that's kind of unrealistic. You know, it's like 4,000 hours of work. That's just not going to happen. So we got that down to a more reasonable amount. But still, they're, they're trying to do stuff to protect you. So are you curious if the district paid the ransom? The FBI has long discouraged companies from paying ransoms because, obviously, it emboldens extortionists. But it's also recognized that some companies or organizations may simply not recover, which could mean adverse actions such as bankruptcy. In that case, banning ransom payments doesn't really make sense either because it's almost punishing the organizations twice. First they get infected, then they face a fine or worse for paying a ransom, all in the hopes of, say, saving their business and not having to lay off people from their jobs. Plus, there's the tricky aspect of trying to enforce a ransomware payment ban, which could divert law enforcement attention from tracking ransomware gangs to those who paid the ransomware gangs. It gets very, very messy. This is why dealing with ransomware is difficult for policymakers, as often there's no clear alternatives, and the best you can hope for is some sort of harm minimization strategy. But to get back to North Shore, it didn't pay. That was a call made by its insurance company, and it was based on a few factors. They had several ransomware incidents all going on at the same time. They, they also negotiated several um, um, payouts during the time that we had our, our incident because the insurance company just cares about 
the cost of the rebuild versus the cost of the ransom, right? In our case, the cost of the ransom was more than the cost of the rebuild, so no payout. In a lot of cases, it's the other way around. So they say, we don't want to pay for the entire expense of rebuild, so we'll just do the payout. But that decision was close. Ski's last-minute rescue of the Active Directory data may have tipped it. In, in our case, we were very close to paying the cost of the ransom. If we had not been able to get payroll recovered, for example, or if we had not been able to figure out some ways around the student record system or been able to get access to the AD data, the Active Directory data, if I had not been able to pull that out with the LDAP tools, we probably would have paid the ransom. The insurer was fine with the district's new choice for an anti-malware software. So what happened to the first anti-malware software that the district was running that missed the malware, and what malware was it? This is where the forensic scripts run by the insurer's incident response firm fills out a picture of not only the start of the North Shore School District's woes, but also how the cybercriminal economy works. To get to the start of all this, we have to rewind back six months to March 2019. In that month, a type of malware called Emotet was installed on one of the district's workstations. It's not exactly known how the workstation was infected. Emotet has been called a door opener by European law enforcement because it's kind of like the staging malware for other malware. It ends up on systems if someone opens an infected attachment or clicks on a malicious link on an email. Once Emotet is on a system, it harvests email addresses and then mails itself out, resulting in more infected systems. Emotet was a massive botnet, and those running Emotet would sell access to infected systems to other cybercriminal actors. That's what happened to North Shore. Emotet's operators auctioned the school district off. Now, it was in the hands of a second group, those who ran TrickBot. And TrickBot is another kind of infamous malware that is known for stealing login credentials. The second group started installing TrickBot in 2019, in July of 2019. So three months later, they start installing TrickBot, sneaking it into our servers. TrickBot is basically a keylogger. So they're doing this to get admin level permission. Prior to the ransomware attack, North Shore made some critical mistakes around administrator account privileges. For example, the district server team had regular accounts in the domain admin group, which meant that those accounts had more power than they actually needed. One of those accounts ended up being compromised. As a result, one of the major changes the district made after the incident is now separating all those privileged accounts from normal accounts and not using those privileged accounts for things like email. Once they got admin permissions on... I don't know how many accounts or whatever, we go back up for bid again on the dark web saying, hey, here's an organization. We've got admin permissions on their servers. Does somebody want to bid on it? And the Rukay group took um, won the bid. So Ski calls the ransomware Rukay, but it's also pronounced Ryuk, and the name comes from a character in a Japanese manga series called Death Note. The ransomware comes from a criminal group known as Wizard Spider. Wizard Spider is believed to be based in Russia, and perhaps unsurprisingly is also believed to have created TrickBot, which is the malware that was deployed on North Shore systems after Emotet. Earlier this year, it was estimated that Ryuk affiliates had made at least $150 million over the last three years. The gang and its affiliates took a chunk of time off last year, but it's believed that Wizard Spider started pushing another type of ransomware called Conti. Ryuk did pop up again in October, however, and there were attacks against healthcare providers in New York and Oregon. So how does this affiliate model actually work? 
The interesting thing we found out about the Rouquet Group is they operate on a franchise type thing like Subway or McDonald's. There's a Rouquet franchise for the West Coast of the U.S. is what we were told. And so that one won it. And what they do is if they get a successful ransomware payout, they pay a small percentage of that to the people who write the Rouquet software. So why didn't the district's anti-malware software catch either Emotet or TrickBot? The district used Windows Defender. (coughs) Now before you scoff, that's a perfectly capable antivirus software, but Ski thinks it's probably the district's fault for not tuning it correctly. So, So what happens is we were running the default Windows Defender antivirus and we probably did not have it configured completely correctly. Primarily because at this point in time, in before September 19th, September 20th of 2019, security was not a high priority in our department. The high priority was just getting the services, keep them running for our users. Now yeah. it's really changed. The district now has a different anti-malware software, which is working fine. But Emotet and TrickBot were an absolutely prolific and global problem, and law enforcement tried to eradicate these botnets. In October 2020, a court allowed Microsoft and a global group of security companies to disable IP addresses and disrupt the command and control servers used by TrickBot. TrickBot was considered a key player in the cybercriminal economy, and it had infected as many as 1 million machines since 2016. But botnets are designed for resilience and it's difficult to completely knock them offline. So just three weeks after Microsoft's TrickBot efforts, a new version was released and experts spotted new infrastructure. Another multinational effort took aim at Emotet. In January of this year, eight countries in Europol sought to shut down hundreds of servers worldwide that were part of its infrastructure. The Emotet action appears to have been more successful. Law enforcement also undertook a fairly aggressive step by using Emotet's own infrastructure to send an update that removed the malware from infected computers. And that was really good for consumers who were affected by this. So, you know, so far, so good. The nature of these things, though, is that where there is a vacuum in the cybercrime economy, something eventually fills the void. The victories help, but it is a long game. In the meantime, North Shore School District has greatly improved its IT security. The district had a security information and event management tool known as the SIM, but now it's actually using more of the SIM's functions like centralized logging. That has helped the district now with even a bit of threat hunting. And ultimately, and this is perhaps the biggest improvement, they were able to hire people. Well, the biggest change was the district realized just how understaffed we were. So we basically had in the plan to hire two people six to six months to a year before the attack happened, but we were not allowed to do that. Um, and so when they realized this, that, hey, we really need these people. Number one is we need additional people to make sure we keep our systems patched and we keep our anti-malware stuff configured correctly. We need a security guy to review our security, make sure we're following best practices. So we were able to hire both of those people, which has been a huge help. Uplifting security is a big component of trying to prevent getting infected by ransomware. But expecting all companies and hospitals and schools to be able to uplift their security enough is just an unfeasible goal. Doesn't mean those efforts shouldn't be undertaken, but it's going to take a lot more than that to stop it. There are, however, lots of ideas of how to deter ransomware actors, and there are a lot of great minds that have put thought into this. That includes greater diplomatic outreach to countries that may be harboring ransomware actors like Russia, and tighter international 
international law enforcement coordination. There are also ways to more closely monitor virtual currency systems such as Bitcoin and potentially make it harder for cyber criminals to cash out. Another idea is tasking offensive resources, think of the NSA in America, GCHQ in Britain, or the ASD in Australia, and using their super secret hacky skills to make ransomware much less profitable and more criminally risky. Some ransomware groups have said they would avoid particularly vulnerable targets like schools or hospitals, but often ransomware developers themselves don't have full control over how their affiliates use their ransomware. So people like Ski and North Shore get caught out, left vulnerable by understaffing and a lack of recognition of just how disruptive the attacks can be. So Ski, if you had a message for these ransomware operators, what 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 would you tell them? Please find another line of business. You're causing a lot of pain for a lot of people. And also, I think it's amazing that you uh, you know you you responded to me and you you wanted to talk about the situation. We're an education institution, and all of my management feels very strongly that we need to share our lessons that we learn with other people. So there is a local conference in Washington and Oregon and Idaho called the ACPE Northwest Conference, and my Executive director said, we need to present there on the ransomware attack. We need to let the other school districts know what we went through and what lessons we learned. So I'm hoping by doing this and by sharing what we went through, we can tell people, you're not the only one. Somebody's been through it. Here's what they learned about it, that you will probably need to do these sorts of things or at least give you some heads up on it. And here's some things you could do before it hits. If you enjoyed this episode of The Ransomware Files, please share it on your social media platform of choice. If you would like to participate in this project, please get in touch with me. My DMs are open on Twitter and I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm looking for other people, organizations, and companies that can share their unique experiences for the benefit of all until ransomware hopefully becomes a thing of the past. See you next time.